everyone, Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. This is going to be a really interesting treat. We're going to go against the status quo. Uh, I studied an $11 billion business, a training business. Jordana just told me, what, $40 billion? 22 billion, I think. 22, 11, 20. It's a lot, right? Whenever there's a billion in there, it's a it's a ton of money. And not too many people are like, oh, I love my training. It's impacted me so much. And we're seeing wonderful results. Something like 75% of that has gone south. People are complaining about it, not renewing, not seeing the ROI from it. So today's conversation with Jordana Zeldin and Jonathan, and this is a cool last name, Mahan, is going to be talking. They're both co-founders of the Practice Lab, and they're going to be talking to us about how we can change behavior through training. A lot of people are saying they can do it. Jordana and Jonathan are saying that they can, so let's find out. So welcome to the show, Jordana and Jonathan. We got to shorten Thank down you, your names. Sir. My gosh. J and J. Yeah, I'm going to call you JJ. Um, so, hey, well, let's jump right into this because I came out of my, so my old background, I, I, don't, I think Jordana, you know this, Jonathan, I don't know if you do, but I came out, out of this with Sailor, right? And our claim to fame was ongoing reinforcement training and, um, you know, we're, we're getting behavior change. So some people are saying that they're doing that. However, as a practitioner, former trainer, I know a lot of times that salespeople didn't change. And no matter how much you poured into them, how frustrated you were about their lack of change, they, they just didn't. So why in the world should we listen to you two that you figured this out, that you figured out the magic Rosetta Stone to seeing behavior change through training? Man, there's a lot of, a lot of pressure there. <laughs> I mean, I guess to start off. It's a big off, claim yeah. there, Mayhem. <laughs> yeah, it's a big claim. So, um, you know, I guess my, my two cents to start off with is, you know, why you should listen to us is we are, in fact, the co-founders of the Practice Lab, which is a company that's dedicated exclusively to um, taking the lessons that have been learned in other performance-based disciplines, right? Athletes, musicians, comedians, et cetera, taking what's worked for them and help them develop skills and get to the top of their game and applying that same time-tested, you know, uh, approach, um, applying it to salespeople and bringing practice into the world of selling. Because if you look around, like Jonathan said, at every single performance-based discipline in the world, like, right, think about learning to play the violin or training in the NFL. No other discipline requires learners to sit passively in a seat with a workbook, get told all the things they need to do, right, absorb it mentally in their brains, and then be expected to actually do it in absence of this thing called practice, right? Where you are breaking down the entire skill into bite-sized pieces, sometimes even moving slowly through it to grow awareness and create new neurological grooves so that come game time, in our case, like real sales calls, you're, you've tried it, right? Your confidence has increased. You found your voice, you found your style, you're able to do it more effectively. But what's so, so strange, Brian, is that you know the status quo in our industry is exactly that. You sit passively in a seat, you learn a bunch of information, and then your only safe, which is very unsafe, time to try what you've learned is when the stakes are high on calls with your prospects. And that makes no, no sense. The first time you try something, it's going to suck anyway. So you learn a terrible lesson. Your prospect has a bad experience. You have a bad experience. And then you think, oh, that didn't work. I'm never going to do that again. And that, we find, is where the behavioral change piece really breaks down in sales training. 
Oh, okay, so let me oversimplify it. So basically what you're doing then is just telling people, hey, let's do a whole bunch of role plays. No. So it goes a little bit beyond role plays. Role plays <laughs> definitely do have their place um, and we do some element of role playing, but we found that um, what we really need as salespeople is to work on and develop our brains um, so that we have brains that are better suited to the environment that that we're in, right? We need brains that are more curious, more empathetic, that have an easier time, you know, thinking on the fly, having an easier time connecting the dots um, and, you know, remembering what was said previously in the conversation and then bringing that back up. And a lot of those core neurological skills can be grown and developed outside the context of selling altogether, Um Similar to how, you know, you might, you might be a, an athlete, for example, let's say you're a football player on the field. Part of your training might involve lifting a heavy bar over your chest. Now, I don't watch a ton of football, but I'm pretty sure I've never seen someone lift a bar over their chest in a game. However, those same muscles that are used to lift the bar are the same muscles that are used to do other stuff on the field. So similarly, when you're working on developing your skills as a seller, you're really working on developing your brain. And again, any sort of exercise or behavior that can strengthen and improve your brain um, can help you in your selling. So we do some, some role plays for sure, but a lot of our training happens completely outside the context of selling where no one's role playing at all. We literally just pair people up to have kind of guided conversations with each other that we know are gonna work particular aspects of their linguistic and neurological abilities. Um, and again, it has nothing to do with selling. No one's role-playing anything. They're just talking to each other, but they're having very specific, tailored, guided conversations um, that are going to help them strengthen their skills, such as empathy and listening and curiosity and stuff of that nature. Now, how much of that is personality versus learn, right? Because, listen, I, I took that test. I had the empathy score one step up from a mass murderer. <laughs> Yet, you know, I, I can play one on, on television, um, the empathetic person, right? So. Is it taught? Is it hired for? Unpack that a little bit because you you touted a little bit about we'll call it NLP. Is that neural linguistic program that you're teaching then, or is it active listening? Unpack that a bit more, please. So the person, yeah, go ahead, Jordan. Well, no, go ahead, Jonathan, and then I'll and then I'll jump in. I'll say it's not specifically NLP or active listening or anything. Um, you know, a lot of those. Uh, a lot of those disciplines and theories have certainly influenced our work, um, but I wouldn't say there's anything particularly we can point to and say, yes, that that's the thing that we teach. Really, we're just focused on the underlying skills that are involved in all sales conversations, honestly, even beyond sales conversations, right? So students consistently report that after being in our program, they find that they're better listeners with their partners and they have more interesting conversations with their family members, like they're more empathetic to colleagues. These are just universal human skills about how to communicate and how to influence um, people, which, of course, you know, uh, serve you beautifully in a sales context. You know, just to really speak to your question around personality, Brian, there, there are a couple of thoughts I have there. So first of all, one of the things in Jonathan and I spent about a year beta testing two cohorts of this curriculum before releasing it into the wild. And one of the things that we noticed around personality is that not everybody is interested in developing their sales skills through practice because <laughs> practice requires, yeah, right? Practice requires like screwing up. It's awkward. It's vulnerable. You push up against the edge of your abilities, which can be really frigging uncomfortable for people. So that's the first thing. But building on what Jonathan said about, you know, some of these skills and some, you know, some of the skills that we teach are very sales specific, but talking about these softer skills like curiosity, empathy, listening, 
everybody has experience in their life being genuinely curious about something or someone, genuinely empathetic. At one moment, at least, everybody has listened deeply. But what often happens is that when human beings jump into their role as sellers, they leave all of that fundamental human stuff at the door, and they're not even aware of how to connect with those qualities and those aspects of themselves that are fundamentally human. So for example, um, just this last cohort, we rolled out a lab specifically on developing awareness of that feeling of curiosity, right? And using genuine curiosity that gen, using genuine curiosity to fuel better questions. Even that moment of being like, well, what does it actually feel like for me to be curious? Rather than I just need to ask 10 questions to my prospect to get through my checklist, has a powerful impact because once we're able to kind of connect those wires and help sellers understand that feeling. Once they feel it in their bodies and lab, they're able to understand when it comes up in their sales conversations and use that as fuel for better, more interesting, deeper, more effective questions, say, in discovery. So it starts, I'll say in summary, with developing that awareness and that connection with something we've, the things that we've all experienced as human beings, but often leave at the door in a sales context. So let me take the other side of it. It sounds like a bunch of hooey gooey, work on brain, new age type stuff, soft skills. This isn't going to help people sell whatsoever. Why, you know, what makes, what makes, why should I believe that all this soft skills should help my team perform better? Jordan, I feel like that's a you question. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Hot potato. I mean, look, if, you know, the, the, Modern selling, right? Contemporary selling is so much more than a series of pre-prepared checklist processes and frameworks, right? Are you telling me that BANT doesn't work then? <laughs> BANT actually can sometimes work if, if you do it in, a, in a, a buyer and prospect-centric way. But, you know, right now, sellers are up against the, the internet, right? Like the, the, the masses of information that they can process themselves in order to make buying decisions. So what that means is that in contemporary selling where buyers have um, the, I guess the one up in a way of the kind of access to knowledge that they didn't have before, what's required from sellers is an injection of humanity is is an ability to connect on a human to human level and guide your prospect through the buying process in a way that amazon.com cannot. And as human beings, curiosity, right? Listening, empathy, these are vital human skills that increase trust, right? Deepen relationship, grow safety so that prospects and buyers feel comfortable telling us what's going on in their world so that we can more effectively solve their problems. And an absence of being able to give our prospects and buyers those very human things, they might as well just, you know, log on to Google and buy themselves or watch a demo on a website and make the decision on their own, which basically renders the sales profession, uh, you know, obsolete. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are trying to do that. You know, they're calling it product-led growth. And that's, um, they'll still, they still need salespeople because you'll get so many people involved, but you still need a salesperson to pull that enterprise together. You still need the salesperson to bring the use case, the ROI to be able to, to do it that a calculator don't, won't necessarily do. So what I'm gathering from, from you here, and by the way, I'm in alignment with you, right? Um, you need, 
I look at it like this. Sales is really nothing more than project management with amazingly good human relationship skills to solve a problem, right? That's kind of the way I look at it, is your job in sales is to identify a problem that that person has, that they likely have no idea what in the world the root cause is to that problem. If your solution then solves the root cause of that problem to fix it for them, then you help them through with that. And it's a project management to take them through that whole entire buyer's journey, seller's journey or seller's path, right? To be able to do that collectively and bringing all of these people kicking and screaming who are so busy that they don't want to do this. This is just an added thing to do in their day. They don't want to be, they don't want to change. The biggest, scariest thing that people are facing is change. And then we're asking people to change, go against the status quo, likely something that they pick. So they now have to admit that they're wrong and oh, by the way, get them to pay you for it. So that sounds pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? So, you know, as we've started uh, the practice lab over the last, I don't know, 18 months, you know, we've had to buy stuff. And uh, it's probably my first time being in the position of a, you know, buyer getting demos from software people and stuff. And one thing that I've found is that buying is very difficult, um, especially when you're busy and have a ton of things on your plate, which let's face it, everyone does. It's like, to really make a good buying decision, you have to think very deeply about your situation, about root causes, about impacts, about the future, about the past. You're going to think deeply about your needs and what you need out of tool. And it's A, almost impossible to find the time to really think about things that deeply, but also B, if, if, if you're buying something in an area that you're not familiar with, you haven't bought before, you don't even know what questions to ask. You, you don't know how to think about your situation. You don't know how to think about your problem. And it actually really is hard to make a good buying decision on your own. And I found myself kind of craving a really good qualified, you know, uh, salesperson who could help me better think through my situation, who could ask me the right questions, who could help illuminate things for me I hadn't thought about before, who could, you know, really connect the dots for me between this list of features I saw on the website and, and how those features would actually matter in my day-to-day -day life. Because I found myself looking at their website and being like, okay, this tool does A, B, C. Okay, those all sound like good things. Uh, this tool does C, D, E. Those sound like good things. But I couldn't really tell why I should care about each feature. And I found myself, again, hungry to understand why should I care about this feature? How will that actually impact my day-to-day -day use of the tool? And all this stuff, I just, I couldn't figure out on my own. I couldn't figure out from a website video, right? So I really believe as a salesperson, that's our primary job. The reason why we can, in most cases, never be fully replaced by demo videos, automation, AI, et cetera, is that we're the ones to A, talk them through their current situation, get more curious about their situation than they are so that we can start opening their eyes to things they haven't thought of before. Again, things about root causes, things about impacts and connections, et cetera. But then also use our experience in the space, right? Because we're experts on this particular problem to ask them the right questions, direct their attention in the right places so that they are asking the right questions and considering the right factors. And then when it comes time to present a solution, it's our job to present the solution specifically in the context of why it matters, right? Connect the dots for them between, hey, this feature, here's why you're going to care about this feature. And all of that serves the buyer. All of that makes their journey buying better and easier. And that version of selling, I think, is very safe, right? We're never going to replace that type of selling with product-led growth entirely. We're never going to replace that type of selling with AI or anything. They're always going to need curious, empathetic human beings to have those deep conversations and help the prospect map out their situation. But the problem is that type of selling requires 
lots of empathy, lots of curiosity, lots of deep listening, lots of skill in areas of, you know, controlling your tone and, you know, wording your questions, right? This, that type of selling requires a lot of skills that are very difficult on the human brain and therefore need to be practiced and developed in advance. I really do think gone are the days when selling is a matter of like reading through a list of product features, pulling up a slide deck and speaking energetically and enthusiastically, right? Like that, that's just not it anymore. <laughs> There's no yeah. way that can work. I'm on a couple of different Slack channels, different communities, and, and you hear all the time, hey, my demo conversion, it's just, it, it's not there. It's, I'm seeing elongating sales cycles. That's because you're doing a feature dump and nobody cares, right? And when you, when you confuse people, like what Jonathan was pointing out, well, I'm looking at A, B, and C, and they seem fairly similar, and I think they'll kind of work. How do we make a decision? We go with the cheapest one. Right, because in the absence of understanding massive differences, you're going to go with the the one that will suffice. They uh, satisficing is um, oh, what, why am I blanking on his name? Um, Paul something Paul, Andy Paul. What Andy Paul talks about in his in his book, um, where where it satisfies, right? So if you can't differentiate, help them to identify why your solution will help them solve the problem then they're going to make the decision based on price. And if you are not the least expensive, and hopefully you're not, you're going to lose a lot and it's going to be your fault. So that's kind of the idea that I have on that. Jordana, thoughts on that that you want to expand on? Or I have a couple of uh, tactical questions that I want to dive in. Yeah, well, I, would, I just wanted to, you know, to build on what Jonathan said about the importance of being more curious than your buyer and being able to effectively ask good questions. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about like the soft skills, like empathy and curiosity and listening all and all of that. But, you know, something else that we spend a lot of time in, in the lab is in how to take that curiosity and then use that to formulate really effective questions. And oftentimes the most effective questions are the ones that are the most awkward to ask or the most uncomfortable or draw your prospect's attention to a particularly painful part of their business that they don't really owe you as a salesperson to open up, open up about, you know? So, um, you know, how you structure your questions after you've done your listening, after you've connected with your curiosity is also really, really important. And that's an area that if you don't practice, it's very easy to chicken out going there on your calls with prospects because you've never tried those questions on for size. If you ask them in the wrong way, they can increase rather than lower defenses and ruin your relationship. So a skill like that really <laughs> kind of getting like your awkward, messy question failures out and the safety of practice so that you develop a bank of the most effective questions and the ones that feel the best really allows you to get into those depths that Jonathan was saying that, you know, the most advanced sellers of the moment need to get to. Well, now you're saying that you can train curiosity. I find it curious to, to hear that you say that. So how do you train curiosity? I find it people are either curious or they're not. So how are you going about training curiosity? So a few different layers to that, right? Uh, one, as Rodetta mentioned, is really just applying focus to what it feels like to be curious. Um, we Again, we all have felt that before, but I don't think anyone's really taken the time to hone in on what that feeling feels like and how to kind of lean into that feeling. Um, so we do actually spend, you know, a, a week really just focusing on that aspect where, again, we're having people have conversations with their partners um, and we're having them lean into that feeling of curiosity. The other thing too, is that there is an, an element too, where it does need to be kind of maybe people need to be guided towards it, right? If you've never been curious before, 
you, you might legitimately hear your partner say something and just blank and be like, yeah, I'm not curious about anything. Seems like I know everything <laughs> I need to know. Um, so in this exercise, we do supply people with what we call a curiosity map, which just lays out, you know, maybe a half a dozen different areas that they could probe into, right? Um, and the idea is when you're having a conversation with your partner and you do, in fact, have your curiosity, just go blank and you're like, seems good to me. <laughs> All the boxes are checked. No unanswered questions. Uh, you can consult this curiosity map, look at it until one of the questions on that curiosity map reignites a sense of curiosity again. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't think of that. But now that I see it, now I suddenly do want to know that. And then you kind of jump back into the conversation. And then you let your curiosity lead again until eventually your curiosity runs dry. And you're not curious anymore. Then you consult that map again and look at it until something sparks your curiosity. So in the early stages, you know, there is that kind of assisted and guided method where when your curiosity does blank, because maybe you haven't strengthened that muscle in your brain before, uh, you have the, the, the aid of, you know, again, half a dozen different areas you could explore um, to help you out. But really, it's just about tuning into that feeling, learning what it feels like. And I think eventually, you know, after doing this exercise enough, you start to kind of remember in your mind what the different areas are that you could explore. And they become a little bit more easily accessible to you in the moment where you don't have to consult the cheat sheet. Um, it's all stored in your head. No. And um, oh, I, I was just going to say, Brian, really quickly, too, you know, the areas that that we suggest that sellers explore on the curiosity map, all of them in some way relate to impact and motivation. Because as sellers, well, can, you give a, can you give us a couple of examples? Because I'm thinking, well, whenever I'm curious, it's because I'm interested. If I could care less, then I'm not curious whatsoever. So can you give us some insights of, you know, what type of things should we focus in on to increase that curiosity? Yeah, let me just, Jonathan, I'd love for you to take that one, but I just want to give the exercise a little bit of a frame here. So in, in lab, the conversation is structured specifically around a change that your partner wants to make in their life. And the reason we've decided on a change is because of course, buying is change, right? So that's a way of simulating some really important aspects of a sales conversation without being in sales role play specifically. So I just wanted to call that out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so for examples of areas we have people explore, right, we'll have people explore the ripple effects of a certain change, right? So not only how it affect you, but how it affect those close to you, how it affect those in your larger community. So again, if they're talking about, you know, a personal change, it's how does it affect your family? How does it affect your friends? Um, you know, if it's a business situation, maybe it's how does it affect your team? How does it affect the departments? But that's one area we tell people to explore, explore the ripple effects of how this one thing they were talking about could affect those adjacent to them. Another area of the map we have people explore is kind of the origin, like how long have you known this was an issue and, you know, why do you want to make a change right now specifically, right? So kind of exploring the origin of things. Um, and again, there's, there's six different areas, but those are pretty, you know, universally applicable. Um, doesn't matter what change you're talking about, those factors are going to be at play. Um, another area, right, is even just like the emotional aspect of it. We ask people to get curious about the emotions that might be going on both now because of the problem, but even the emotions that might be going on in the future once the problem's been solved and what that might feel like. So we give people, again, six different buckets of where they should explore. And typically what you'll find is that, you know, if you run out of curiosity and then you look at this, something on the map will reignite that sense of curiosity. And you're like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Now I suddenly do want to know, right, the emotional impact this is having on them because we didn't ask about that. Yeah, it's, it's curious that you have that um, because most of us will, will put questions in a linear format. And your brain doesn't think like that. Your brain focuses on like Jordana and I and a couple of, uh, we, Jordana has been on 
a couple of episodes. I should have looked it up to say, hey, go back in our episode, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> but we, we remember we were doing those mind map exercises. And that's the way our mind works is it jumps around and it's not linear whatsoever. So uh, it's, a, it's a curious way of doing it. It's a curious way to create curiosity. So I like that. <laughs> now, um, how do you then help people to do the recall and tie back? Because some people will say, oh, I just have a horrible memory. I'm just bad at that. Um, so how do you help people with recall and tie back? Because that recall and tie back relates directly to a couple of things to build trust. It shows that you, uh, you're listening, that you truly understand, and that you care. So that recall and tie back is extremely um, critical. But again, some people will say, I'm just really bad at that. So how do you help that person? Yeah, so we're not running the a lab on that this cohort, but in one of our very first cohorts, we had a lab on what we call um, uh, summaries and micro micro summaries and, and macro summaries, and that we all in in that exercise. If, God, it's been so long, Jonathan. But we also took sellers out of the context of role play, but the instruction was, and we'll often do this just to work the muscles even though it is not natural that every time your partner says a thing to do a little quick micro summary, little quick micro summary, little quick to get into the habit, not just of repeating what they've said, but doing a summary with a little bit of inference, deeper inference. And then in the end, in the big macro summary, that's where we, we gave people a kind of framework actually to tee up a really effective, almost like narrative summary of the most important elements that they learn. And that's a really, really important skill. But what this sheds light on is that so often, Brian, in sales role play and in kind of status quo sales practice, everything is expected to be just like reality and everything is expected to happen in real time, right? So if you're role-playing objections, you better respond as quickly in role-play as you would on the fly. But if you think about musicians or athletes, right, they're repeating the, the series of notes that they have to play a hundred times just to get that little bar right, right? And sometimes they're slowing it down. So we'll oftentimes in our labs and in our exercises, when we're wanting to focus on a very specific muscle, have people get their reps in on that skill, like the summary, you'd never play back every time someone says something, have them focus in on it over and over and over again, so that by the time the lab has finished, they've gotten a lot of at-bats on that one micro skill, that one moment, that one behavior in the conversation that they can then take into their real sales call, put it back up into real time, but they now have the awareness and have had the practice. Got it. That as well, that, um, you know, a, a poor memory in this sales, in a conversation context is oftentimes a marker of poor listening. Um, just about anyone's brain can hold on to something that jumped out as very salient and important and impactful for, you know, the length of a conversation. What our brain can't do is hold on to just like a, a, an endless list of meaningless facts without context or importance, right? We can't remember those in, the, in a context, so, or in a conversation. So one of, the, one of the exercises we have is something we do called Listening Fest along with a guest facilitator, Chris Williams, where we actually teach people about four different levels of listening that you can be in um, and give people a chance to feel what each one feels like as the listener, but even to feel what each one feels like as the speaker, right? To have someone listening to you in that way. But when you're in the deeper levels of listening, we are more than just like hearing what they're saying but you're really tuning into your intuition and hearing what they're not saying, reading the cues of their body. Really, I always describe it as using the information to like build a mental model of their world. Um, when you suddenly hear something which has a real impact and significance in their world, 
because you're deeply listening, you suddenly recognize how big of an impact what they just said has in their world. And it really stands out in your mind well, compared to if you're just sitting there taking raw notes, not really thinking of the impact or consequence of anything that you're saying, you're just factually recording what you're hearing. So the memory piece often comes down to, to listening and you're not listening effectively enough. Um, and once you shift into that deeper level of listening, suddenly it becomes easy to remember stuff because how could you not? Because that was so important when they said it, it just jumped out to you and stood out to you. Go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say one of the most powerful aha moments for us and for participants who experience listen, you know, this, this listening lab is that how deeply someone listens to you directly impacts how much you feel safe, comfortable, and willing to disclose. And in sales, Part of our job is to go deep, right, with our prospects and to build enough trust so that they feel comfortable revealing the depths of their problems so that we can, you know, make more effective recommendations. In absence of deep listening, our prospects, at least this is what we experience in lab, will not feel comfortable opening up. Because think about it. Have you ever, Brian, been talking to someone and they're just like on their phone, they're looking around, like, how does that as the speaker make you feel like how, how much trust does that engender in that moment for you? That makes me feel great. I love it. <laughs> so that's an yeah. important takeaway as well. Why listening is so, so important in a sales context. Yeah. And, and also being others focused, I had a, had a, a person reach out to me through false context. And then when we were having a conversation, do exactly what you're talking about there, Jonana, is like not listen whatsoever, constantly just tie it back to that person. There was no back and forth. There was no relationship building because in reality, it's this, you, we must create an environment of trust, comfort, and credibility at a peer-to-peer -peer level. If we don't create that trust with comfort and credibility at that peer-to-peer -peer level, then we're not going to get anywhere. And I don't care if you're an SDR, BDR, brand new to the marketplace, talking to the CEO or any C-suite, you can have that peer-to-peer -peer conversation with that person because back to what Jonathan was saying earlier, do you like that tie-back recall? That what, back to what Jonathan was call, talking about earlier, if, if you cannot um, relate, th th that CEO, C-suite person has no idea how to buy what you're selling because they've not done it likely before, or it's been so long, or so much has changed, they need help and guidance. And so even if you're brand new on the job, through your training, you have more guidance than what they have right now. So have that peer-to-peer -peer conversation with them to have that trust, comfort, and credibility at that peer-to-peer -peer level. Because I can trust my doctor, but not feel comfortable around him. And I can feel very comfortable around my 14-year-old son, but I won't trust him further than I can throw my house right now, right? So, uh, I mean, you have to have all three to come along. So thoughts on that before we, we press on. Just think that uh, deep listening builds all three of those, right? When you, when you do deep listening, you're able to ask more impactful questions. The moment you ask your prospect a question, that they hadn't thought of themselves, but they immediately recognize is a really important question they should be thinking about, your credibility soars through the roof, regardless of what your title is, regardless of even how much knowledge you have. Right now I sell cybersecurity solutions. I really don't know much about cybersecurity, right? Like I'm completely spent my whole life outside that industry, but I know how to listen, I know how to ask questions. And a lot of times people assume I'm more of an expert than I am just because I ask them questions that they go, oh shoot, that's a really good question. I haven't thought of that yet, but we probably should think about that team, shouldn't we? Someone take notes, we should think about that, right? So I don't, I, we don't really know much, but I know how to deeply listen 
I know how to ask good questions. So that helps build the credibility, the trust, the comfort. And that's the key there, right? Because the, the it's no longer the information you can give. In the old days, people didn't have the information. And Jordana, you brought this up earlier. Uh, there is a just ubiquitous amount of knowledge out there. Um, so it, I'm likely not going to tell somebody much that they don't know. But I can ask a question that's going to make them really sit back and go, huh, that's a good question. And it goes from that, right? And, and Jordana and Jonathan, I'm guessing that you'd, you'd agree with this, but it seems like whenever we're doing our job effectively, we get, oh, that's a good question. And then the next time you ask a really hard hitting question, they go, that's a good question. And then the next time they, it's almost, they speak to themselves like, that's a good question. And the next one, they're like, oh, right? So when you get them to that, oh, that's whenever you know that you've now shown that you can be trusted and that you have great credibility. It's not from what you've told them. It's from this pinpoint, laser-guided, accurate questions that you've asked them that made, that made them really think back and go, wow, if they can ask these questions, they really know my world, even if I don't. So thoughts on that, Jordana? Looks like you had something to say. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, as we talk about like the, the the vitalness of sellers asking great questions, you know, all too often the question asking itself is relegated to this moment that we call discovery in the sales conversation. Then you move into your demo and it's like all about you, your features, your capabilities, your functionality, and all curiosity, all effective questions go out the window. And that's where unbeknownst to you as a seller, your deal starts to go dark and your prospect starts to check their emails. So, you know, but the reason that we focus on curiosity and, and listening in the early part of the curriculum is because so much of the cohort and the practice that we do later on is focused on making sure that the entire consultative sales conversation really is a dialogue fueled by effective questions that is consistently allowing your prospect to shift their perspective and think deeply and, and think differently. So, you know, very tactically, Brian, once we move on from these soft skills, we are helping sellers tee up more effective questions in their demos make sure that they are relating, as you called out, tying back what they're about to show back to what they learned in discovery in service of creating a richer, more engaged conversation. And if you haven't practiced how to do that, it is so much easier as a seller to just kind of rest easy and rely on your slides and everything you know about your functions and capability really <laughs> at the expense of your prospects experience and the expense of, of your deal and your selling, right? So those okay. are vital skills that we practice. All right. So let me, let me ask you this again at the risk of making you angry, but here we go. Um, nothing new under the sun. We're talking active listening. We're talking um, human interpersonal skills. We're talking about role plays, putting them into uh, adult learning type sessions. So I guess I'm still wondering from all of this, all right, so what? Nothing new under the sun. Why, how are you getting change? How are you getting these people to change? Because here's the deal. Uh, you, we call them paid hostages, right? They pay to be a hostage in your training oftentimes is what, what this is. Or I don't want to change. Or I don't like this hooey-gooey, happy, touchy-feely stuff. I'm, that's not who I am. How are you getting those people to take this change and change their behavior? 
John, can I take this for a moment? I have so many <laughs> thoughts on this and then I know that you will as well. So one, I'm not angry. I'm like, so, so glad that, that you asked the question. Um, first of all, Brian, you know, unlike most sales training where sales leaders come in and they pay a sales training company and a lot of sellers sit with their arms crossed and they don't want to be there and they're checking their phones and not participating. The practice lab really specifically vets participants for the qualities that make for the best practicers. These are people who are growth-minded, who are curious, who are wanting to get, to get vulnerable and bump up against their own abilities, uh, fail all in service of mastery. So who well, hold on, hold comes on. in? So yeah. I'm the sales leader and I'm going to say, well, I'm only going to let the growth-minded people who want to, uh, who want to grow into the training, the rest of you schleps, I'm going to just let you go. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So right now we're not, we're not really selling the practice lab internally to teams. It's for hand raising individuals and sales mm. leaders will make recommendations that specific team members join. But right now, and I can't, I'm, I can't imagine a time this is going to change because the caliber of your practice partner is so vital to the experience. If you've got an arms crossed, bad attitude practice partner, your practice will be less effective for it. And we can build the most incredible curriculum and teach the most amazing skills, but the, the, the caliber of the experience and the growth happens in community with your peers. So I'm so, okay. Yeah. I'm okay with this, but really what you're saying is the way that we found that we can help people change is we find people that want to change to begin with. Well, so that, that is the first most, I would say probably the most important ingredient, but Jonathan, do you want to speak about the three phases of behavioral change that really ground the program, this cohort? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, the, the truth is, Brian, right, even though we're focusing on the folks who are you know, most aligned, most hungry to change, most open-minded, truth is those folks have been hungry to change, open-minded for a long time, um, mm -hmm. and they still haven't changed their behaviors. And most of those folks who come our cohort are the type who are avidly listening to podcasts and sales books because they want to up-level their skills. And the only way they know how is through more learning. But what they all inevitably find is that you can logically understand a concept. Come game time, you got a real conversation, pressure's on. And your mind just blanks and you're like, uh, what was that thing Jeb Blunt was talking about? Oh, shoot, I can't remember. I'll just do what I normally do, right? So in order to affect real behavior change, we find that it happens in three basic phases, right? First is the learn phase where you do have to understand the behavior, why it's effective and what it sounds like when it's done right. And, you know, you can get the learn anywhere, right? Um, we do some, you know, teaching in our program, although truthfully, that's a very small part of the program, right? Each, uh, each week, there's usually like a 10 minute lab prep video people watch just to introduce them to a concept. And then that's it, 10 minutes a week. That's all the like learning you do. Because we find that to your point, there is nothing new under the sun. What we're teaching here generally isn't rocket science. It's just a slightly new angle, a slightly new approach. Oftentimes it's making combinations people don't normally make of like skills you usually use in other areas of your life that we bring into selling that you don't usually bring into the sales context. But truthfully, we're not teaching rocket science here. So there's usually like a 10 minute lab prep video. Then the second phase of behavior change is practice. Your very first few awkward stumbly attempts to take what you learned and put it in the real world. And if you're practicing on prospects, either A, the prospect or the practice just will never happen because again, you'll have really strong alarm bells in your brain saying, don't do that. Don't try that. We don't feel confident. So it won't happen at all. Or possibly even worse, you will try it. You'll stumble. You'll fail. It'll be awkward. It'll be a mess. You'll ruin that relationship and that deal goes south. Um, so the practice piece is what happens inside of lab, right? For an hour a week, people get the safe space with like-minded individuals and they get a chance to get those first few awkward stumbly steps in where they aren't quite sure what they're saying and they mess it up. And by the end of lab, they get to a basic level of, you know, proficiency um, with the behavior. 
And the third phase of behavior learning or behavior change is, of course, to actually implement it, right? To actually do what you just practiced in the real world. And our program also provides support for that piece too, right? Where people have, you know, a workbook they work with that kind of supports them in their first few attempts. Um, we even have like these demo cheat sheets people can develop where they can have it kind of pulled up on the side during their demo in case they start getting, you know, a little bit, a uh, little bit lost. Um, we have an attempt log for people to log how their experiences and how it went, make notes for themselves about how to make it better. We have a community where people actually have this a dedicated Slack channel for people to share clips of them trying these behaviors on for size so they can get feedback from their peers on what went well and what didn't go well. But by taking people from the learn phase to the practice phase to the first steps of actually doing and implementing, we find that these people who started off pretty hungry are able to implement behaviors in a way they never have before, right? And that's the funnest part of this, people saying, hey, I just had a sales call and I did A, B, and C, right? And not only is it great to see their behavior change, that is probably, you know, the, the most difficult thing to do in sales training, but we're also finding there's even just benefit in having the awareness. You know, a lot of salespeople say in the past, they'd get off a sales call and they'd be like, I don't know how that went. Or they'd be like, ooh, that didn't feel good, but I have no idea why it didn't feel good. Now they have awareness around their behaviors and how their behaviors impact things. And they can tell you, hey, this part of it went well. I did really good listening. However, the question formulation wasn't the best. Or maybe they'll say at the beginning of the call, I was very curious. I was asking great questions. Towards the end of the call, I got sucked into just general pitching and dumping and stuff like that. And I missed some of the key behaviors. So they have awareness around their, their performance that they don't normally have. Which again, if you look at any other performance-based discipline, that's a huge part of how the best become the best is they have this awareness. Every repetition, they can tell you what went well, what didn't go well, what they need to improve. So that was a long-winded answer. Jordan, did I miss anything? Well, I was just going to say this awareness piece is so important, Brian, because so often in role plays and even in like game tape reviews with managers, you are looking at the whole call. You're just looking at like selling and then your manager fires off like 10 pieces of feedback all related to different parts of the call. And then you're just supposed to take those 10 pieces of feedback and then like somehow change all of them. But the difference here is that in the practice piece, because we spend one week on one specific skill, one moment in the selling conversation, that's where sellers develop the awareness, right? Get the at-bats at that moment that they can then take in their sales conversation and then do the breakdown. As Jonathan said, I did this really well, but my question TEBS really sucked, right? Or I found myself feeling curious, but when it came to that objection, I just immediately rebutted it and didn't go through the framework that we teach around expressing gratitude and getting curious, right? So. Got it. Well, son of a gun, we could talk about this all day, but we're going to run out of time here. So why don't we rapid fire these next couple and, uh, and close this out. So when you're, and I get, let me try to frame this question properly because it really gets around the biggest challenges, right? So let's take it from the perspective of the learner. What's the biggest challenges that you see your learners coming in to where they're taking the knowledge but doing the worst that you can do with knowledge, not apply it. So what's the biggest challenge or mistake that you see from the learner's perspective of not taking the learning and applying it? Do you mean, Brian, like in our community, what, what, well, is, in the, your what community is the barrier and, for folks in our community to, to apply what they've learned? Well, why aren't they? What prevents them from doing that? Because that's the biggest mistake, right? Is not applying what they've learned. So what's preventing them from applying it? 
I, I mean, I hate to sound like no, everybody's applying it, but people are here. These people are committed to these three phases and understand that the application is where you get the, like the bang for your buck. So, you know, simple challenges for, you know, for, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, or like, if people don't have a demo lined up that week and aren't able to do the skill, but I'm not really seeing many people facing anything beyond logistical challenges that are a barrier to application. What are your thoughts, Jonathan? I mean, for folks in our community, um, the logistical challenges of, you know, sometimes we happen to practice a skill and they don't either don't have any calls or they just don't have a call where that moment pops up where they have a chance to practice it. Um, you know, I think, you know, there probably are moments where our, our individuals opt out of trying out their new behavior. I guarantee you there are moments because <laughs> I train this stuff and I'm and there's times where I wimp out. Yeah. So I, I no offense to Rodana, but I guarantee you there's people that are just not telling you that, hey, I had this opportunity to apply it and I didn't. Um oh for sure. I mean look, changing behavior like remembering to do the thing that you've just learned every time it's an, it's an impossibility. So I don't mean to infer that people come from lab and then every moment that presents itself, they're doing it. But, but, but I guess what I'm saying is that my, my sense and the feedback that we've been getting is that they feel more comfortable giving it a shot for the experience they had practicing. I'd say the two, the two barriers, right. One is nerves. Um, because, you know, even after practicing for an hour, you still might feel a little bit shaky on this new behavior. And it might feel safer to just do what you've always done because no one's gotten angry at you for what you've always done. Um, so it's a safe behavior. So this is the nerves piece of it. And the other piece, I think, is just, you know, for lack of a better term, neurological grooves, right? If you've been in this job for three years and every single time you pull up this slide, you say this talk track. And every single yeah. time you show this feature on your screen, you talk about these things. It can be really hard to choose a new talk track, choose a new path, right? And not just fall into the rut of doing what you've always done. And, and obviously practice helps with that because it gives you a whole hour to, to dig a new groove. But, you know, even with an hour, sometimes those old grooves are still a lot deeper and easier to fall into. So I'd say those are two reasons, nerves and, and you know, I guess we'll just say neurological grooves for, to use an analogy. And I'll throw one out there as well. A third one for your consideration is this. Um, most people are scared of messing up. And we've grown up in the fact that you celebrate the successes and not the attempts. And especially whenever you're learning a new, new skill set, celebrating those attempts is vitally important as well because you are going to mess up. And then it's come back and do a lesson learned. You know, hey, you tried that. Well done. Let's talk about how you could have done it better. So don't have that feel of failure, but rather a celebration of attempt um, is, I think, another thing that most people um, mess up on for, for trying to apply new things. So uh, that's kind of a, an additional thought there. So excuse me. Now, how about your, um, your, your different business hacks? So whenever you're looking at the biggest change that your people have seen from a sales skills perspective perspective what's uh what's one hack or suggestion that you would have for people to take and utilize i think that um it's advice has been thrown on many times before but i am finding that it's really important to get to know and understand yourself what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you like, what you don't like, and really focus on spending time in the things that you're good at, that you like, that you're passionate about. Because, you know, the truly great moments in business, great decisions that you make, great ideas that you have, right? Uh, great conversations, all that stuff 
um, isn't necessarily always within the realm of control. You can't just opt to have a brilliant idea. You can't just opt to make a great decision. But if you're generally playing in the spaces that you thrive, neurologically, your brain actually behaves differently than when you're playing in spaces that you find to be a real drag, right? So obviously, there's always elements of stuff that just has to be done. But in general, tune into when you feel the most alive, tune into when you feel the most excited, tune into when time flies by quickly for you, and focus your efforts and energies doing those things and try to build your life around doing more and more of those things. Because then your brain will involuntarily just do better quality work, right? Um, and, and, and lead you better places faster. Yeah, and you won't dwell on all the stuff that you're doing poorly, right? Because unfortunately, too often we say, "Wow, you got to fix this, this, and this," and you're focusing on all the things that suck your energy. That you're not gonna, no matter how good you get, or no, no matter how much practice you might get, proficient at best. Whereas I, I like what you're talking about, Jonathan. If you play to your strengths, you're going to find that flow better. You're going to be energized by the work as opposed to drained by the work. And you're going to become an expert in it more quickly because you'll love to do it. And even if you said, hey, I'm not paying you anymore to do it, oh, I'll still do it because I love it, right? So that's kind of the idea behind it. So I love that. Uh, Jordan, it looked like you had something to say on that too. Well, I was just thinking that I agree, generally speaking, that like using the signals that your brain and your heart are telling you about what makes you feel most alive is a really great space to play in. And from a behavioral change perspective and a skills development perspective, you know, we're often kind of trained to stay away from discomfort, right? To stay away from the, from the places where our you know, our skills aren't as refined as we hope they'd be. And one of the really important parts around developing skills through through practice is to allow discomfort and awkwardness to be a signal that like you might be on the right track, that you are practicing right in that sweet spot where it's right at the edge of your abilities. And actually neuroscientist backs this, that when you're practicing there, making mistakes, doubling back, making corrections, that that's where the neurological circuitry and, and matter develops more quickly and where skill is developed. So I'd both encourage playing to your strengths, but also not being afraid to spend some time in, in, at the edge of your abilities as well, where you feel a little uncomfortable. So embrace the suck. I forget who said that, but yeah, yeah. you should embrace the suck of that. Exactly. But and the thing is, if you, if you identify what you really enjoy doing and you want to be increase your ability to do that, then you're going to find those micro segments of whatever it is that you're doing. And those are the areas in which you, you play and you experiment and out of curiosity, yes. how can I grow and, and, and improve? So I wholly agree with that. So love it. Um, now, how about different re uh, resources that you might recommend books, podcasts, guides for people, how to learn how to do this? Yeah. So there, well, there are two books that really, in some ways gave gave birth and were major inspiration for this program. Um, one is the, the talent code, which explores, um, like ex exceptionally talented, uh, people and groups of people from all over the world and different disciplines and explores specifically how they practice to grow those skills to the heights that they have. And we've borrowed a lot of the, the, the findings, the research findings in that book to inform how to most effectively practice in the lab. And one thing that I'll say anybody can take away in or out of the lab is to slow down your practice. Bring it down to half speed, 
because if you're busy, you know, focusing on everything happening in real time, you miss the vital, vital opportunity to build awareness of the behavior, which forms the foundation for behavioral change. And then Jonathan, do you want to call out Peak? Yeah, so it was a very similar book uh, called Peak by Anders Ericsson, and he spent decades studying top performers, figuring out how do you get to the top echelons of any skill, right, from chess players to actors to musicians to athletes. Um, and again, you know, he got, goes a lot into the neuroscience of, of, of the creation of myelin and how practice actually creates myelin, which is a substance in your brain that actually speeds up um, brain signals, right? Which literally means your brain just operates 10 times faster, which is how you're able to make better decisions. In the context of sales, it's how you're able to more quickly notice things, draw connections, have inferences, ask better questions. Like, I think, don't think there's anyone out there who would disagree that having a brain that works 10 times as quick as the competition's brain, right, um, isn't an advantage. So Peak and, and The Talent Code are, are definitely the two books that really informed this program. I can very truthfully say that this whole business would not exist uh, without Peak and The Talent Code, because that's what pushed us down this path. Nice. Okay, cool. Uh, and I don't think I've read either one of those, so I'm excited to check those out. Now, um, what do you see the future holding? What's coming down the pike that has you going, ah, I like scared to death? Or, hey, this is pretty cool. I'm excited about this. So what do you see uh, coming down the pike? Well, I'll just volunteer that a lot of people are starting to talk about practice and I think are waking up to the idea that it really doesn't make sense that we should expect people to listen to a podcast or read a book and then be able to do the thing they read about. <laughs> so we might, you know, we, we might be the, you know, the first company, sales training company, specifically applying these principles to sales. But I think we're part of a, uh, you know, a, a growing movement of awareness and a shift in thinking around how to more effectively empower salespeople to change their behavior. So, and no one's doing anything about it. Now back to sales, what I see coming down the pipe um, is that there is a really strong desire on buyer's end to avoid salespeople. You know, I painted this beautiful picture earlier of how, buy, how difficult buying is. Now, salespeople can be the thing that helps. But if you ask any professional buyer out there right now, is that your perspective on salespeople? If they heard my little speech, they'd laugh and be like, I've never had a salesperson do that. Um, you know, literally there are car dealerships in my town that have gigantic banners all over them that say, our salespeople aren't paid commission. Like, whoa, shouldn't that be a really big red flag that something's wrong in the sales world? We have all sorts of focuses on product-led growth. We have buyers asking, can I just see the demo and buy the product on your website and not have to talk to a salesperson, right? We have some companies even advertising that like, hey, we don't have salespeople. You can just buy directly and avoid the salesperson. And that's a selling point. So clearly that, that the idealistic vision I painted of how hard it is to buy and how a salesperson can be the perfect helper, it's not really what's happening in reality. And as technology advances, as the internet speeds up and becomes accessible in more places, um, you know, as AI develops, I do think there will be companies who try to go without salespeople and there will be demand in the market from buyers to avoid salespeople. So if our profession doesn't clean itself up, I don't think we would ever be entirely replaced, but we could see a lot of products and a lot of industries where we are replaced. And there are just generally fewer sales jobs because we've done as an industry, such a bad job of living up to what we really should be doing. Um, I, I do see that coming down the pipe that in the next couple of decades, there'll be a lot more salesperson lists buyer journeys. And again, there'll be a market of hungry, happy buyers who are uh, wanting to transact in that way if we don't clean up our act. Yeah, exactly. Well, good stuff. Well, hey, who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should people reach out to you? Okay. So right now, the practice lab is for account executives specifically because the program spans you know, setting the agenda all the way through negotiating and close right through to discovery. 
we will be opening up applications for the next cohort, which is Q1 2023. I mean, right now it's August. This might come out a little bit later, but in a, in a couple of weeks. So if you're listening to this podcast, anytime between, you know, end of August, 2022 and early December, uh, and this approach to learning sparks your curiosity, piques your interest, you can go to thepracticelab.co and throw your hat into the ring for uh, one of, um, how many are people are we, 35 uh, seats for, for Q1 2023. Okay, principle of scarcity, look out, only 35 participants, so sign up. <laughs> the intimacy of the community helps to, 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 to improve the experience, so that's important to us as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you get too, uh, it, it gets unwieldy, unwielding pretty quickly and a lot of mayhem. Uh, no, <laughs> we like mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, good stuff. So now how should they reach out to you? How do they do this? Yeah, thepracticelab.co. You can find uh, me and Jonathan both somewhat active on LinkedIn. And if you have any uh, questions, you can email us direct at hello at thepracticelab.co. Perfect. All right, gang. So, hey, listen, we need to listen better, ask better questions. Crazy idea. Uh, practice this. Be comfortable in our practice. Make sure that there's a safe environment. Funny story. Whenever I was flying airplanes with the military, we had our um, oxygen masks on, right? In the old days, the, the flight instructor would grab your oxygen mask and shake it around, right? But they found that that unsafe environment would led to poor learning environments. So even the military is a softer, wow. gentler learning environment. So let's do that. Create safe places. And let's practice like skilled athletes and musicians. So good stuff. Bottom line is take this, apply it, right? Learning for learning's sake is pointless. Learning for application is everything. So thanks so much, Jordana. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. Any final parting thoughts? Such a joy to talk about this with you. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having us on. Good conversation for sure. All right. I really appreciate it. So, hey, uh, five-star reviews. Share this with all your friends and family and loved ones, especially those who need some help listening. Uh, we won't tell them that you said that or that's why you <laughs> sent it to them, though. But yeah, share this out and uh, review on all the different uh, platforms that you listen to. Hey, thanks, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week or next time.